This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Coming up on today's show, monkeypox, like everything else, spawned a whole bunch of conspiracy theories. Also, could we be on the verge of a nuclear renaissance? We know there's a demand for new energy sources and more developments in Russia. Vladimir Putin declares martial law in some regions of Ukraine and Russia. We'll find out why. Right now, we're going to have a conversation, though, that uh, I'm really interested in. Uh, uh, this is, you know, being in the information business, this is... This is a realm that uh, I find myself in sometimes, uh, and I, I know how painful it can be. I don't know how else to describe it. So our next guest uh, has my undying respect and admiration because Tim Caulfield, um, a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and Canada research chair in health law and policy and a well-known author, and he's done Netflix specials and all the rest, has spent so much time in this realm. Uh, first of all, Tim, I don't know how you do it. It is exhausting and the vitriol that you face must be just through the roof because people are really, really committed to whatever it is they're, you know, they're, they've bought into, right? I mean, it's part of their personality. Yeah, it, it, it is exhausting. You're in the media, so you get probably more than I do, but it's exhausting. <laughs> People are so committed to their position, and uh, they seem to have a lot of time <laughs> to push out to push out the the, the noise. But it, but it is exhausting. And and the other thing is, it has an impact. Unfortunately, you know, they seem like they're these fringe views, and but we know research tells us that the ranting. Unfortunately, it matters. Yeah, it does. And we'll get into sort of the ways that we can try and work to, to combat that. And I don't know if there are any, but let's start with um, the latest uh, information that you just put out this week, which is really interesting to me. Um, we're talking about monkeypox and the conspiracy theories that emerge surrounding monkeypox. And I guess the first thing that struck me is it's within seconds, right? As soon as monkeypox becomes a news story, within seconds, there are conspiracy theories swirling around it, right? Yeah, it, it sounds like you're exaggerating and that's hyperbole, but you're not. You're not. It, that's one of the things we found in our study, and you know, coincidentally, another study came out right around the same time. Last week, same conclusion. You know, really, this the misinformation spreads so so fast. It's like they're teed up. You know, like yeah, they're yeah. ready to go. And so in our study, uh, we used an announcement by the World Health Organization sort of as the starting point, you know, a major announcement about monkeypox, sort of as the starting point. And then we monitored uh, TikTok for uh, approximately a day uh, to see what kind of conspiracy theories emerged. And holy cow, it was just instantaneous. And the other thing that's really important to recognize, you know, TikTok, two billion users around the world. It's become this social media platform juggernaut. Uh, and in just that brief amount of time that we analyzed these conspiracy theories, 1.5 million views. Boy. So, yeah, it's, it's just incredible. The reach, the rage, uh, incredible. And you know what, like you say, it seems like they're teed up. I think in a lot of ways they are, Tim, because the, the other thing you talk about is there's an alarming lack of creativity here. I mean, we're, we're still talking about Bill Gates. I mean, there's a theme, and they will 
make any, any event that happens anywhere in the world fit the prescribed themes that we know are there. Bill Gates, you mentioned World Health Organization. Bad place to start, Tim. You know that's a bad place (laughs) to start. But I mean, they're, they're all the same, right? You're exactly right about that. These themes continued, right? And so I think this goes to something that you said at the, off the top. You know, people have these pre- preconceived notions. They have this identity. They have these things they feel very passionate about. And as soon as they, an event happens that provides them with an opportunity to rage about those themes, they do exactly that. And often, for some reason, Shay, they're sitting in a car screaming at their phone. <laughs> I don't know. I swear to God, a third of the videos I looked at, they were individuals sitting in their car. But perhaps that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> you know, you're right. I've seen the video. We've all seen the videos. I mean, they, they, and that's the thing. We've all seen them. That's the point. The spread of these things, um, it, it's astronomical. And, and it, why do you think, as someone who spent so much time dealing with this, why do you think every single catastrophe, calamity, event, I don't care what it is, needs to be fit into that box by the people who push this information. What, what's the end goal? Well, you, you know, it's interesting. You know, people often ask me, because I've been studying this for, you know, for years and yeah. years and years, what's, what's different now, right? And, and I think, and we, I think we've talked about this before, it, it has become about ideology, right, increasingly, right? You know, in the past, you know, people had these crazy ideas about things, conspiracy theories about the moon landing, or, uh, but, but, it, now it's so much about about partisanship and ideology, and so I think that that is really fueling a lot of this. When you watch these videos, and I watch hundreds of them, <laughs> um, you really got that sense, right, that this was part of their broad worldview, and uh, they're going to use this monkeypox event as an opportunity to rant about it. Um, and that happens again and again and again. Uh, it happened with uh, with the Ukraine invasion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That that became uh, an opportunity. And it's these same players, Shay. That's the interesting thing. It's the same players, and they're talking about biolabs in Ukraine and how, you know, it really is a conspiracy to create a new COVID and, and Russia's the good guys. You know, I heard it again and again and again, and uh, I'm sure the next world event will produce similar narratives. Correct me if I'm wrong, doing what I do and being a guy who's been um, dispensing information for 30 years and being in this realm, th- what I've seen emerge is part of the new media ecosystem that we live in. For a lot of the people that are involved in this stuff, their primary job is to say that people like me are lying and obfuscating and working with some shadowy figures to keep them in the dark. So part of the job is to say everything that we do is a lie meant to manipulate and you only should listen to us so it really doesn't matter what the event is they're going to come up with the counter narrative to say hey listen if you really want to know what's going on you better listen to me is that part of it i mean just for their own personal gain that is part of it and there's really fascinating research that suggests that 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 exact kind of uh, process is, is is happening there you know and we're really careful here i don't want to overgeneralize but there you know interesting research that talks about people who really embrace conspiracy theories more likely to to be a narcissist yeah, and and part of what's going on there is they like to feel unique they like to think they have access to special knowledge that you don't have access yeah, to yeah. and they're going to tell you about it right so that's that's i think an interesting an interesting trend. And, and and the other thing that we know is that those individuals that get their information from these sources are more likely to believe misinformation, more likely to spread misinformation, and those individuals that get their information from the 
the legacy news, people like you, less likely to. And oh, we have to be careful about correlation causation, but that really speaks to that echo chamber that you're kind of in, referring to, right? The, this echo chamber that's out there. So, you know, where you get your information matters, uh, and those that are pushing misinformation often have, you know, a, a particular agenda, and sometimes that agenda is fueled. Yeah by, you know, their own worldview. And the event and the information that they're talking about really don't matter. It's like you say, it's furthering their own personal agenda. Um, now, you've spent a lot of time trying to combat this, and you think it can be done. Tell me how. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I like to be an optimist. <laughs> uh, and there, but there, are, there is a lot of good news stories here. You know, the good news is we, we're starting to get more research on this and have a better sense of what works and what doesn't work to fight misinformation. And one of the things that we wanted to do with our study is highlight how you can use social media kind of as a tool to monitor what kind of themes are emerging so you can craft an engaging science-informed message that can counter it on the platform. So let's, let's go to where the misinformation resides, you know, that's on these social media platforms, and counter it. And studies tell us it works. It may not feel like it works because there's, you know, you're holding back the tide, right? There's just so much bunk out there. But there is good evidence that it works. And we're starting to learn about things like pre-bunking, you know, like what we're doing yeah. right now, you know, warning people about the misinformation that's out there. That can make a big difference. Yeah, cr teaching critical thinking skills, that can make a big difference. So there are tools that we can use, but we have to come at it from absolutely every direction. Here's the one that I have a hard time with. Uh, and, okay, and it's on the text line right now from Lyle. It's not misinformation. It's more information that's available. It's not a conspiracy. Like, there's a lot of people where if you say that's misinformation, they'll say, well, who gets to decide what's misinformation? And I just say, well, it's, it's, it's real. It's reality. I mean, I mean, how do you, I'm sure you're asked that question or that's put back at you. Oh, that's just your narrative. It's not misinformation. It's just your information. How come you get to decide? What's the answer to that one, Tim? Well, first of all, I think we need to off the top recognize that, you know, defining misinformation is challenging. I think it's going to be coming become more challenging in the future. But it's so, so important to highlight that what we're talking about right now, this isn't stuff on the margin, right? This isn't stuff that's, you know, there is a reasonable scientific debate going on. This is stuff that is clearly bunk. And unfortunately, unfortunately, there's been this really powerful narrative coming from those pushing misinformation uh, around the idea of freedom of expression, canceling, you know, um, silent, you're silencing me. And uh, that's not what's happening. We're, we're actually talking about the marketplace of ideas here, right, using good yep. information to counter the bunk. Um, and the stuff that we're referring to is clearly misinformation. And I think, you know, the Alex Jones verdict that came out last week was the yeah. last week. You know, that highlights there are lies and there's the truth. And what we're really talking about here, certainly in our study and what most regulators and, you know, most science communication people around the world are talking about, is clearly, clearly bunk. You know, there aren't microchips in the vaccines. Yeah. Um, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and it seems so clear-cut. Uh, I appreciate the work you do, and I appreciate you joining us today, Tim. Thanks so much. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
So we spent some time today already talking about uh, the carbon tax and the cost of fuel and all the rest of that stuff. And it's it's all working, as we've said before, to these aspirational goals that we've set for ourselves in this country. We're going to be here by this date, and we're going to be here by this date, and all these things are going to happen. And we've seen that maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves uh, in, in some of these areas, right? <laughs> but one of the things that we've talked about here on the show before, and I think is something we need to keep talking about, is where does nuclear energy fit into this? It's 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 something that we see around the edges. Our province has talked about some small reactors and things like that. But in terms of generating uh, clean energy, this has to be part of the conversation, I think. And somebody who has been working on this file and been pushing it for a very, very long time is Dr. Christopher Kiefer. He is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and he joins us now. Dr. Kiefer, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, Shay, it's wonderful to be back. So you've got a big day uh, today. You're you're in Ottawa. You're going to be speaking with some of our elected officials. Just tell us what's on the agenda for today. Yeah, so I'm actually on the phone right now from West Block. I'll be speaking to uh, a number of members of the Liberal Caucus, as well as uh, the Cabinet Minister, Seamus O'Regan, our Minister of Labour. Um, and then later on, I'll be meeting with... Uh, about 20 conservative MPs as well. And the message is, is pretty similar. You know, um, Christy Freeland, our deputy prime minister, was just down in Washington at the Brookings Institute, and she gave a very interesting talk. And what she said is that Canada needs to fast-track energy and mining projects yeah. uh, in order to help our European allies, you know, to liberate themselves from petro-tyrants, a.k.a. Vladimir Putin. And obviously we need to do that. And she thing that she did was she referenced the Canada-German Hydrogen Alliance, which is very interesting. I can get into that later. It's, it's not a good investment in terms of the energy return. What I'm concerned about is that these good intentions will not uh, apply to nuclear energy. This government's had a very mixed track record on nuclear. And, you know, nuclear offers our European allies not only the ultimate form of energy security, but it is the most effective and proven deep decarbonization technology that we have. Canada is a tier one nuclear nation. We're one of the biggest uranium exporters in the world. So we have a huge opportunity here um, to do the right thing and, and to benefit from it, quite frankly. So the message that you're trying to, uh, I mean, is it basically, hey, listen, you're, you're talking about the energy transformation. You're talking about the transitional economy, all this stuff. You need to include this. This is how we can help. Is that basically just trying to, to put it in front of them? Well, listen, I mean, nuclear is the number two source of electricity on our grid. There's been recent life cycle analyses, which include, you know, the mining, the construction, the decommissioning of nuclear plants um, by the UN Economic Commission of Europe. Um, they found nuclear has the lowest CO2 emissions of any source. You know, we decarbonized the Ontario electricity grid using nuclear. Um, it's provided us with enormous clean air benefits. We were able to phase out coal completely off of our grid. Um, which is something that, you know, is very difficult to do. And we have kind of as a counterpoint countries like Germany that have invested over $500 billion in a wind and solar dominant energy transition, hooked themselves up, frankly, like heroin addicts to Russian gas, and as a result, are, are turning to coal burning. They never phased out coal. Coal is the largest source of electricity on their grid. So we have a proven technology, and, you know, that's just the power plants. Canada exports enough uranium domestically and internationally to displace 230 megatons of emissions. That's one-third of Canada's all-sector CO2 emissions that is offset by our uranium production. So, you know, these are things that are being overlooked. I'm here to bring that uh, to the government and opposition parties' uh, attention um, because, again, this is such a clear win for the climate, 
uh, for clean air and for Canada's economic prosperity. You know, Dr. Kiefer, since last time we talked, I think the parameters around this might have changed a little bit in terms of the urgency and, and the fact that it seems like there's a lot more urgency because of what's going on in Europe, as you just mentioned, and they're going back to coal and the rest. How quickly could... Um, we have nuclear stepping in and replacing some of this energy that we're trying to move away from and we're missing right now. Sure. I mean, so Romania is uh, the site of four Canada reactors. Two are finished. There's two that are partially finished. Canada could, could step in immediately to assist the Romanians in finishing those last two reactors. That's still going to take several years of work to complete. But the other thing is that Russia is one of the biggest exporters of nuclear fuel. And obviously, the sanctions mean that we should not be supporting that industry. Canada has a huge opportunity here. Uh, Cameco and um, Brookfield Renewables um, have just gone forward with a plan to buy Westinghouse, which is a major nuclear fuel fabricator. And so Canada could really step into the mix here, take that business away from the petro-tyrant Vladimir Putin, um, and, and really run with this and pioneer it. You know, currently, go ahead. Have you seen a recognition of that among our elected officials? I know you've been working on this for a while. Has their position started to change at all? Again, there's a very contradictory position within the government. There certainly are a number of MPs, particularly in Ontario, where the nuclear supply chain is one of the key drivers of our manufacturing and industry. You know, the beauty about Canadian nuclear technology is all of the innovation that is all Canadian. Our supply chain is 96% made in Canada, which means that for every dollar that we spend on our CANDU nuclear reactor technology, we generate a dollar forty in economic returns and activity. So it's, it's the ultimate form of economic development. It's the ultimate form of energy security. And we have the, the, the bounty to be able to share that with Europe. And Europe is crying out for it. Again, Romania is asking for this. The UK, France, mm-hmm. uh, Poland, uh, ne- Netherlands, all of these countries are dramatically pursuing it. And even Germany, you know, where the policies have been so anti-nuclear. Greta Thunberg just condemned the Germans for uh, prematurely closing their last two nuclear plants. And they have reversed that decision. So, you know, the tide is turning. Um, this is a nuclear renaissance. We're in Canada's uniquely positioned um, to, to ride that wave um, and to be a hero of, you know, a, a clean energy transition based on the most proven technologies that we have. All right. Well, uh, best of luck with uh, the work that you're doing today, and we'll follow up and see how it went. Thanks very much, Doc. So it's been a week of uh, rapid development and escalation uh, in Ukraine, and we've covered some of it. We've talked, of course, about the renewed attacks and um, the civilian deaths and how that's been carrying on. Um, Talk about the fact that uh, nuclear exercises are being undertaken right now by NATO, and they will be followed up by exercises by Russia. Uh, So it's constantly uh, uh, ramping up of tensions and an escalation more today. I'm not sure how it fits in and what it means in terms of the direction that this conflict is going. So we're going to chat with Christian Luprecht, who is a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, editor of the Canadian Military Journal and author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press. Christian, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shane. My pleasure. So a couple of the developments I want to get your take on and what it might mean to where this conflict is headed. Today, uh, the Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, declared martial law in four Russian-occupied regions in Ukraine. Those are the ones that are up for question where they had the referenda. Um, but also some in Russia. Just how do you int- read what, what, what uh, Putin did today and why he did what he did? 
Well, practically, I mean, given that the rule of law is uh, rather irrelevant uh, in the way, in Russia in general, let alone the way that it's been applied in the occupied uh, um, uh, territories of Ukraine, um, it's probably doesn't have a significant impact on the ground per se. Uh, this is rather for a domestic audience. Putin has to sell to uh, his people. Uh, why there's this withdrawal uh, from Sherson because of course his uh, he's always told the Russians that you know his military is so superior and that everything is going according to plan and so I think he's sort of portraying this as trying to change the narrative that it is Ukraine that is somehow attacking what is now Russian territory this is why he had to annex the territory in the first place so that now he can weave a narrative that somehow it is Russia that is under an existential threat and it is Ukraine uh, that is going after civilian infrastructure, civilians, and that Russia is somehow the good, uh, the good country here, trying to save civilians uh, from uh, from the Ukrainians. So I think this is sort of what's really going on with the with martial law and sort of as an effort that uh, uh, that that Russia here. This is a I think an effort by Russia to posture. Uh, to its own population about the measures that it has to take um, in, in in defending itself. Um, of course, you know, it's just a spin in a narrative, but, you know, they have to come up with something given how badly things are going for them. But does that change the way they may respond? Like you're saying, it's a spin, it's a narrative. I mean, there being the anticipation with the Sherson, as you say, uh, is that they'll be driven out. The Ukrainian forces will retake uh, that region uh, from Russia. So they'll be claiming that this is a defensive move that they're making. But at the same time, does that change the way that they feel emboldened in, in how they respond if now they're on the defensive instead of uh, making some sort of offensive move? Uh, yeah, I think what Putin has to get ready for is he's going to have to sell more of these sort of stories to uh, his population. And if the three-star general who had predicted the counteroffensive um, in the spring of this year um, is correct, the U.S. three-star, uh, then by the spring of next year, Ukraine will be retaking the Crimea. Um, and so given that his own general, who is now in charge of uh, uh, troops in, uh, in the Ukrainian occupied territories, Zerovikin, who himself has serious blood on his hands from Chechnya and from Syria, um, going on state television and saying that things aren't going all that well, uh, it suggests that it's sort of sinking in in Russia that uh, uh, they really are starting to run out of options rather quickly. The other one I wanted to ask you about is the emergence of Iran as a player in all of this. Let's talk about the drones, the drones that were used in the attacks on Kiev earlier this weekend. It appears they were Iranian, right? Right. So this is my enemy's enemy is my friend, right? So that both the Iranians and Putin uh, have, I shouldn't say the Iranians, the Iranian regime um, and and Putin and his kleptocracy have a hate on for Russia. Uh, sorry, have a hate on for the United States, because, of course, the United States, in particular, since the end of World War II, represents what we refer to as the international rules-based order. But that's not really an international rules-based order. It's Western countries that have shaped the international world to the best of their ability with the values and the norms that they believe are essential to provide prosperity, freedom, equality, democracy for people. And of course, tyrannical authoritarian regimes aren't clear, aren't on side with those values. So no surprise that they would be opposed to that order. And so this is Iran and Russia making common cause, not just, of course, now sending drones, but also it appears Iran uh, sending the trainers of how to operate uh, those drones uh, to, uh, to Crimea to train up Russia. Yeah forces 
How concerning is that? The fact, I mean, I guess the, the estimation has always been that they're involved, at least in the background. But now that we know that they're working in the region and they're uh, they're arming Russia, does that change how this conflict is being perceived by the West? Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at that. Sure. I mean, we should be concerned because the Iranians um, have considerable experience. If you look at the last uh, 10, 15 years in the Middle East and the way Iran has been able to expand its influence in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, uh, they have considerable experience on the battlefield, including with drones. So they certainly know how to make use of their technology and to make use of fairly unsophisticated technology. At the same time, of course, it may also be the silver line here might be that you know when your best friends are iran and north korea yeah. it suggests that maybe russia's runway is getting a little bit short yeah exactly that's a really good point um christian thank you so much for your time i appreciate you joining us thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.